that explores a full-spectrum spirituality, investigating the shadow, the light, and the experience of unity. My name is Josh Summers, and I'm really glad you're here today. Okay, in this episode, I'll be releasing a, another of the Monday Night Dharma Talks that are part of the online Sangha that Terry and I have formed. And as I try to explain at the beginning of this talk, um, really, since the inception of the Sangha, Uh, which is just over a month old now, I've been trying to explore some basic themes uh, that relate to spiritual practice. And uh, some of the early themes have involved the cultivation and the intentional development of friendly kindness towards experience, namely metta, or loving-kindness practice. And I've then shifted into some weeks with themes focusing on the dimension of awake awareness, what awake awareness is like, how to shift into it, different uh, portals for how to start to access it. And it occurred to me for this week's theme that it's time, I think, to ground a conception of awakening within specific teachings. And in this talk, I try to ground the concept within the Buddha's fourfold teaching that he gave upon his own awakening, known as the teaching on the Four Noble Truths. So, as I say, I think a lot of times when we practice, we we think of awakening as something that will happen for other people or that might happen for us, but only as the result of a very long, arduous journey. And this runs contrary to many descriptions of awakening that the Buddha gave himself, where he says it's here and now, it's evident and apparent right here and now. So rather than delaying the experience, I try to point to it and give some suggestions for how to access it, recognizing that we'll, in the beginning we'll just be getting short glimpses. But it's really from the immediacy of these glimpses that a new way of being and a new understanding of practice starts to unfold naturally. So if you'd like to join our Sangha and uh, not only have access to these talks in the library, but also have access to the recordings or the live presentation of our, our yoga classes over Zoom, please head over to joshsummers.net forward slash sangha. That's S-A-N-G-H-A. And you can join as a uh, beneficiary member for free, or if you're able, you can offer us a modest support as a sustaining member. Either way, if you're interested, you're more than welcome to join us, and we've really been enjoying a shared sense of community that's developing through our online offerings. Now, without further ado, I bring you the talk, Ungrasping This Moment. I sent out this invitation, if you're interested, to uh, check out my old friend's jazz concert for America that happened last last Thursday night. Aaron Goldberg, who's the pianist on my... Uh, on my podcast and the intro and outro music um, got a bunch of his brothers and sisters together from the jazz community um, to support the Biden Harris campaign. And um, if you listened, this is not going to be a political statement, don't worry. But if you listened, uh, you know, it can sound like they played a lot of different tunes, a lot of different songs, but 
one of the core structures of jazz is a chord progression known as the blues. It's a 12 bar construction or structure. And depending who is playing the blues, depending on the tempo, depending on the style, it can sound like a, a whole different kind of composition. But if you learn, if you know how to listen, you can hear that very unmistakable development throughout the, the song. And um, I'm saying this like I, I couldn't remember in the concert. I didn't. I was paying attention sort of half-heartedly, <laughs> believe it or not, because I was paying attention to something else going on on my iPad. Um, but they played at least a couple of blues tunes, and the blues sounded quite different depending on which which this, which song was. One was quite fast. One was a little bit of a samba. And I want to say this in terms of, or set this up in terms of how I'm thinking about what I'm going to be sharing with you each week, in that there's going to be a central theme with, with a multiplicity of variations. And if I were to kind of borrow some language from Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, the Buddha who taught for about 40 plus years said, I teach two things and two, two things only. In, in music, in music land, land, language, that would be he's a one-trick pony. He's got one tune in him. And the two things he would teach are the truth of suffering and the, the truth of the end of suffering. So I will be coming at that theme, that central structure of understanding and comprehending our existence. We'll be coming at that theme from a variety of different angles. And it can sound like I'm talking about different things from time to time, but at the heart of it, is that issue of how do we come to understand our experience of difficulty with life and how do we comprehend that to release ourselves from it, to, to experience a, a, a freedom of being not defined by distress or reactivity. And so far, um, kind of as a surprise to myself, I've been teaching in a way that is sometimes referred to as the direct path. Um, there's, there's two broad paths, and I'll speak to them briefly here, but there's two broad paths in spiritual traditions. One is called the gradual path, where you sort of get titrated instructions over a long period of time. You start out very simply, and then get a, it gets a little more complex, and a little another layer gets added onto it, and you gradually sort of ease into a deeper and deeper understanding of the way things are, the, the nature of suffering, the end of suffering, or who you are, and what you are really beneath all the forms that you take yourself to be. You sort of gradually wade into it. And then there's a whole series of, of traditions that go right to the root of it from the beginning. And they, they encourage you to look at the very sense of self that is trying to find relief, that's trying to find freedom, that's trying to find satisfaction in things it goes right to the root of who and what we are from the very beginning and what's kind of confusing to me or perplexing to me in my own process here is that over the summer i felt like and i and i shared this with some of you in the mindfulness module over the summer but i felt like i came to a very clear sense of what a what a rational progressive path might look like we start very simply and gradually add on a little bit, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit to get to the to the deeper end of the, of the realizations. And yet, and I and actually I planned to share that from the very beginning with you all. I said we're going to start 
and then I was going to write a lot about it and, and put all my writing together into a book idea. And yet when we started, um, and I talked, discussed this with Terry, but sort of after the first week or two, I saw myself as I was teaching, just swerve into this direct path, trying to point out the nature of awareness from the beginning, the nature of awareness within which suffering resolves into peace. And I've been kind of somewhat harping on that theme for the last several weeks, coming back to it, looking at it from different angles, trying to give different ways of apprehending the nature of awareness and the nature of consciousness. And after last week's talk, I, I was kind of reflecting on why have I done this? What am I, what am I doing here? Am I qualified to do this? Or should I be doing this? And the answer I kept getting as I keep reflecting on it is This moment that we're all in necessitates beings who are awake. The beings who have a deep, profound understanding of the root causes of suffering. And you know what the root causes are once you know what it's like not to suffer, even if for a glimpse. So I'm going to continue on in this way, but the um, the, the phrase that I'll share, share with you from the Korean Zen tradition that I think applies here is this idea of sudden awakening with gradual cultivation. Because you, there, I, I, I actually firmly believe many of you, if not all of you, have had very direct, real tastes of what I refer to as a, a, an experience of awakening. And I'm going to define that a little bit more. And because of the nature of self-doubt, self-criticism, uncertainty, we can, we can sort of dismiss those experiences as being inauthentic, not enough, um, something that wasn't really real, we were deluded about it. And I think it's, that's, that's a detriment to us on the path. To, to, to disacknowledge, to deny our own direct tastes of this quality of awakening. So that's why I'm trying to speak about it, to normalize it. It's, this is something that we all possess already. And, and then once we learn to taste it, we get glimpses of it, as one of you mentioned last week, as we get glimpses of it, then we can learn how to stabilize within that experience. We gradually cultivate an ongoing sustained experience of what it means to be awake in the world. Now, when I first came across the term awakening, um, and I, I'm, I'm imagining many of you may share this view, it can easily conjure these kind of grandiose or perfected ideals of what it means to be awake. Like someone who is awake never gets irritated. Someone who's awake never experiences sadness. Someone who's awake never drifts off in their meditation. Someone who's awake, uh, you know, never cheats on their taxes, whatever it is. <laughs> you know, that we can apply, project all these ideals on what it means. But the way I see the term and see the experience is that it's, it's, it's waking up out of something so you're waking up from something to something else. And the thing you wake up to 
always feels intrinsically better than what you woke up from. So if we take a simple example like sleeping, this may not be the best example because some of you might like wake up and like, oh, that was really good when you're asleep. But imagine that you're like you're in a dream and the dream is uh, causing a lot of anxiety or stress or, or distress and you were to wake up from it. There's that sense that, oh, now that what I'm, I'm awake to is more real than the condition of being in the dream. The dream does not have the same substantiality once we've awakened from it. And many of the traditions assert the same thing about this deep end of spiritual waking up. Our normal sense of self, when we're identified with our body and thoughts and feelings and emotions and all of that, is analogous to the dream state in that it's unpleasant when we're identified with those conditions. But when we taste the inherent freedom of our consciousness or the inherent freedom of our mind as it is, it feels intrinsically more stable, better, more peaceful than what we awoke from. The contracted state of being only this organism with all its impulses. And as, and the other thing is it can sound grandiose to make any claims to this too. It's like, who, who, who's any right? Who am I to have any right to say I'm awakening or have noted, have experienced awakening. And I'm going to save that one for a little bit. When I start to talk about the process that I think is at play as we start to awaken. And it's the process you'll see in your own meditation experience. But one way to sort of, open up to this dis discussion and reflection is to consider how the Buddha himself described his own awakening. And this gives a little hints to what, what's involved within it. And the caveat here is, I, I always have to make this caveat, whenever I talk about the Buddha or Buddhism, um, I'm referring to this historical figure that left a series of reflections about what I think lead to an experience of a flourishing life. And by that, I mean a flourishing life where you're not uh, conditioned and imprisoned by your habit patterns of being. So you're no longer like determined by your upbringing, your uh, cultural uh, conditioning, your family conditioning, and even your evolutionary condition. You're no longer determined by those things. You're able to have a free agency to decide how and what you do in the world. So I see him very much as a pragmatic philosopher. And, and Buddhism is, is kind of singularly unique in that way in terms of the world religions where it doesn't your, your own liberation, your own freedom isn't predicated on anybody else other than your own willingness and interest and, and, and commitment to looking into your own experience. So his teachings and the way I try to share his teachings are offered as reflections. There's something to consider, to something to examine in your own experience. And if it bears fruit, if it feels uh, helpful, supportive, then the encouragement is to make that reflection your own 
And if it feels confusing or troublesome or irksome, whatever, just to leave it aside. So the way he described, the way the Buddha described his own awakening, I, I think is first kind of in, uh, encapsulated in his te the teaching he gave to his five friends when he uh, rejoined them after he woke up. And, and this is called the, the, the teaching that sets in wheel the motion of the Dharma or the, the teachings of the Four Noble Truths. And truths, right from the get-go, sound like things you have to believe with or agree with or come to see yourself. And uh, I would hedge that a little bit and say, consider, consider this, this, this fourfold process or this fourfold teaching as reflections to take into your own experience. You don't have to agree with it. You don't have to believe it. See what it's like. See, see if anything that is referenced here resonates in your own experience. And then from there, you can, you can start to work and, and, and make it your own. But the first thing he pronounced to his friends when he rejoined them was that there is this experience of, of dukkha. And dukkha is the, the Pali term for anything, any experience that feels stressful, unsatisfactory, incomplete, unresolved, at, with, tinged with agitation, tinged with sorrow. It's, this, it's the basic feeling in life when things don't feel like they're going correctly. And that can happen in your meditation. It can happen off your meditation. It can happen a lot. And this, in his opinion, in his experience, I should say, his experience is, is a dynamic in life that can be released. It's not intrinsic. It's not an absolute condition of life. He's not saying life is suffering. That's an absolute or metaphysical statement. He's simply saying there is dukkha. There is this experience of dissatisfaction, unsatisfactoriness, incompleteness, agitation. And when we, when we, when we really open up to it, when we look into it, we experience his, the second reflection he gave, which is that there's a cause for this distress. And I'm gonna speak about that cause, the various forms of the cause next week. But essentially it comes down to a, an experience of grasping for something else. There's a, there's a mechanism in the heart mind that grasps beyond this moment for some resolution in some other condition. Either we want a better sight, a better smell, a better taste, a better sensation, a better thought, or we want to get rid of things under the impression that if we can clear our mind, clear our experience of certain things, then our agitation will come to an end. But it's the grasping, the mechanism of grasping that in a sense binds us to conditions that cannot provide lasting satisfaction simply by virtue of the fact that they're not permanent. So there's no sound you're going to get. There's no taste you're going to get. There's no sensation you're going to get. There's no thought you're going to get. There's no feeling you'll get that is outside of the lawfulness of impermanence, or what he referred to as anicca. So as long as we're grasping after impermanent conditions, when those things arise and cease, we're bound to feel agitated and stressed. So 
directly experiencing the mechanism in us of grasping is part and parcel of walking his path to understand the end of dukkha, the end of distress and suffering. And that end is always available. It's, it's here and now. It's, it's available to us right now when we let go or release whatever we're grasping onto and experience reality as it is without grasping. And that, that moves us or shifts us into the third reflection, which is, in his formulation, the truth of the cessation of suffering or the neurota. Now, for the yogis out there, neurota doesn't mean cessation of thinking or the cessation of the fluctuations of the mind as it does in the Yoga Sutra. This is a cessation of the dynamic or the mechanism that is fueling dukkha. So it's the dukkha that ceases. You're still here. I'd be still be here. The world's still here. Everything to our senses is still here. But the argumentation the sense of incompletion, the sense if only I could, if only I got rid of, if only I became, that comes to an end. And we glimpse it. We, can, we get a real direct taste of it. And, I, and my, my confidence in saying that most of you know this, if not all of you know this, is because I know many of you are yoga practitioners. As I try to say, to, try to say in many of my trainings, uh, yoga has this wonderful way of taking people through an experience of postures and breath exercises and, and, and placement of attention. You go through your paces of the yoga process, and then you lie back in Shavasana at the end of your asana practice. You lie back in Shavasana, and you're often said, just let everything be now. You've done all your work. Now it's time to rest. And it's usually the time that the mind stops grasping for a period of time. And within the, with the absence of grasping, there's a very clear sense of deep contentment, a peace, a stillness, a silence within whatever else is going on. That's the, that the, all those conditions, the peace, the stillness, the silence, they're within you, but they're not exclusive. They, they don't, they don't, um, they're not violated by anything else going on. They're able to be uh, inclusive of everything. So we all can get glimpses of it. We get glimpses of what Ajahn Amaro refers to as the reality of non-grasping. We get glimpses of it. And then what happens? We lose it. <laughs> we, you can say we kind of fall back into a more habitual orbit of being. We open up, to, we come open to a very expansive state of release, of deep contentment. And then we find our mind goes into something else and starts to root around for a problem to fix. Now this dovetails or this patterns into the meditation process. And this is now gonna transition a little bit to talk about the instructions for tonight. In general, the first instruction I always try to give any meditator, where it's, whether it's the first day or practicing for a while, is just a quick reminder that in this path of meditation, we're not trying to change or alter our experience. We're letting our experience be its natural presentation. 
it's in, in letting things be as they are that we allow ourselves to open to this dimension that's with all things already, that's already at peace. And so if we're trying to, if we're trying to play with the dials of our practice and trying to breathe in a particular way and maybe try to silence our thinking, we're just trying to monkey with the conditions in our experience, trying to get them to be behaved properly. But I've already tried to say, we can't find resolution in conditions because conditions change. So we let conditions do their changing dance. They come, they go, they rise, they cease. They do what they're going to do. Now, one of the conditions that's very common as we meditate is the condition of drifting off. There's going to be a phase of this big dynamic from time to time in our meditation where we drift off. And that is often maligned or seen as the enemy of meditation. We need to stop that. But if I can do, if you can get one thing out of tonight's talk is to reframe the attitude or the mindset towards drifting off. Because if you think about it, we need to drift off so that we can wake up. We can't have awakening from our drifting state without the drifting. And when we wake up from drifting, that is an experience of stepping out of being lost in our inner world, where we don't have any agency, we don't intend for it to happen. We're kind of in this dream-like trance for a period of time. And then we come out of it. And I, as I would assert tonight, reality will wake you up. And, and, and just in those two things, as a teacher, what I'm trying to encourage you to do is, is Really surrender to the processes that come to you or within you during the meditation. Oftentimes, we, we, when we practice meditation, we're trying to do it from the level of ourself, doing it correctly. I want to get the meditation down. And the sense of self can't do that. I'll probably talk about that more later in another, another talk. But by letting things be, your mind will drift off. And then rather than feeling like you have to control things to stay awake, which is trying to be awake from the level of the self being awake, rather than letting awakefulness be awake in its, in its own nature. We let ourselves drift off. And then something from the world, something from reality, will come knocking. It could be a twinge in your foot. It could be a, 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 a twinge or pang in your chest. It could be a sound from the environment. It could be a loud thought. And suddenly you're startled awake. You're brought out of the dreamlike trance into presence again. And tonight, one of the things I'm going to recommend is to celebrate that transition. That waking up from the trance of dreamlike being in, in sort of engrossed in your world, inner world and waking up to knowing that you are both just lost and now that you're here again, that is the microcosmic moment of awakening. The whole path pivots on that moment. And contrary to the way many people practice, and the way I did is you sort of can get into a, a dynamic of self-flagellation for realizing you've wandered and you're not present and the whole thing is supposed to be awake. No, you're awake again. Waking up occurred. Now, the good news is this whole cycle will go, will happen hundreds, if not a thousand times 
in any given sitting, like a 30-minute sitting. So you've got multiple, multiple moments to practice appreciating becoming awake, to practice celebrating your own awakening. So that's the first sort of big layer. And I know I've been reviewing this from a previous talk, but I want everybody to to really uh, remember and, and, and try to put this into practice tonight, that you're starting out as we sit in a very relaxed, receptive way and letting things be. Your mind will drift as it does. And when you wake up to celebrate and appreciate what it's like, how different it is to be awake versus being lost or in the drifting state, which isn't to say I think there's anything wrong with the drifting state. Like I'm trying to say it's, it's necessary to really compare and contrast the difference between not being awake and being awake again. Like th th that condition is very important for our learning process. And the more and more we appreciate being awake, my, my sense is that the mind tends to incline in that direction more and more just because it's intrinsically calmer, be more peaceful, more restful, particularly when you add on the next instruction I'm going to give now, which is when you're awake in those, in those passages of your meditation, those phases of your meditation tonight, when you're, when you're back online, you know you're sitting here, you know you're awake again, and you're letting things be as they are during that phase. So there's a great receptivity underlying this whole process. But as you're letting things be, if you sense something's not quite right, you're not getting it, you're confused, there's gotta be another moment to have, you don't feel present enough. If you get a sense that there's something not quite right, then tonight's sort of prompt that I'm going to recommend is to ask yourself, what would it be like to be with this without grasping? What is here? Another way of saying it is what is here now? when the mind isn't grasping for something else. And this isn't a mantra. This isn't a question that you sort of repeat, like if you can get 2000 repetitions of this phrase in the meditation, you're gonna get a great meditation. That's not the point. The point of the question is to point you into this dimension of experience that's already here, that is not in conflict with itself. So you just ask, what is here when there isn't grasping for something else? And I, I wanted to title this, this talk, Ungrasping This Moment. <laughs> because if there's a, a pernicious, in my opinion, a pernicious dynamic out there in, in contemplative world is it's the, it's the earnest and sincere desire to be residing only in the present moment 
which is itself a kind of grasping. So rather than trying to like muscle your way into presence, rather than trying to sort of subjugate or dominate yourself into being in the present moment, what I'm trying to recommend is we let the whole experiences we're going to have when we meditate, we just let them unfold as they will. And the two broad dynamics you're going to notice are drifting off and waking up, drifting off and waking up. Reality wakes you up. That's, and that's one of the key things tonight. Let reality wake you up. Let the sensation field in your body wake you up. Let environmental sounds wake you up. Let reality wake you up. Don't worry about waking yourself up. And when you're awake, just be with what you're awake to. And then when in your, your receptive listening to yourself and your experience, if you catch the heavenly messenger of dukkha, and dukkha is necessary in order for us to really wake up, if you catch the heavenly messenger of something unsatisfactory, Something that doesn't feel right. You can, again, if you're, it just doesn't, uh, something that makes you agitate. You're waiting for me to ring the bell. You're bored. There's got to be something else to get to. Whenever there's that agitation, consider using the simple question, what is here without grasping for something else? Or what is this experience without grasping? And to help you with this on the physical level, one thing you can do tonight is to have your palms upright with your hands relaxed. This is kind of a somatic articulation of the experience of non-grasping. We just let our hands be, the fingers softly curled, fingertips up. It's reminding, it's a somatic reminder of non-grasping, which is the, again, the, the third reflection the Buddha is giving in this, in this fourfold teaching. The fourth, the fourth reflection is that there's a path to cultivate our capacity to reside or abide in this experience of non-grasping or abide in this experience of the end of suffering. And I'm going to be speaking a lot more about both the cause of suffering, the experience of suffering, the path, opening up the whole path, um, those will be themes we're going definitely going to be working into over the next while. But I want to begin with a clear acknowledgement and appreciation in your own experience of what it's like for you when the argumentation, the contention, the conflict, the struggle ceases. Because it's, I don't want to, it's like, Apologize if I get the Martin Luther King line incorrect, but it's was it freedom delayed is freedom denied, or something like that. Don't want this. I want I want to be any doubt about your own ability to to fully realize the heart of this teaching. And for far too many folks, and myself included, we just. We think we're not worthy of it. And so we, we think, oh, I have to do it five years, 10 years, 30 years. And then maybe I'll be so fortunate. 
That's not what the Buddha spoke. He said the end of suffering is here and now for those who are willing to look. Now, the reason why that's not a, a, a statement, in my opinion, of, of tremendous egotism and grandiosity is because you will taste it and then three seconds later you're <laughs> you're drifted off and you're in your own back in your normal orbit back in the normal conditioning so we get glimpses and then there's the path of gradual cultivation how do we integrate those glimpses into every dimension of our being so that that reality becomes an abiding trait of our being, not a momentary state. Okay, so I was successful in terms of keeping the talk within the talk defined amount of time, roughly 30 minutes. So I'm going to start the guided meditation. If you want to come to a, a comfortable seated position, either on a chair or on a cushion or on the floor. And then we'll move into the experience of all this. So we begin with the gener the generous intention of letting the world be as it is for now. And when I say the world, I mean your experience of the world. So sounds, we let sounds be sounds. We let thoughts be thoughts. We allow sensations to be sensations. And that much is enough just to let things be. If you like using a perch or an anchor, feeling your hands, feeling your breath, feeling your body in general, if that's a, a safe, nourishing home base for you, feel free to use that here. But it's not required. It's not necessary. It can be a tool that's useful. It can be a tool that gets in the way. And then within the physicality of your being, you may appreciate just letting the palms turn up 
the fingers softened and relaxed, the fingers softly curl. And to feel on a physical level what it's like not to be reaching or grasping for something. And the other recommendation, which may feel a bit contrived in the beginning, is to allow for a soft smile within your face and mouth. This doesn't necessarily have to be visible to others and no one's looking at you anyway. but more of the tone of a smile or a friendly, a friendly visage or appearance across your face. Expressing a warmth of receptivity to just this, to the totality of just this. And the yin and yang of our experience is that part of the time in our experience will be drifting. That's the more dreamlike, less clear, cloudy, yin-like experience compared to the dynamics and phases when we're awake. We know we're here. The mind is clear. These are the more yang-like phases. They feel more ordered, sharper. We can't have one without the other. And from appreciating that interdependence, that non-separation, that unity between drifting off and waking up, We can put down the battle many of us carry towards the drifting mind. And as you remain with yourself, letting things be, particularly when you catch yourself waking up, when reality tickles you, prods you, pokes you, when reality announces itself and you come back 
to it. You depart your own world internally to the reality that you're in. Appreciate what's here. Appreciate what it's like to experience consciousness again. It's a recommendation. You don't need to do it every time. But occasionally when you wake up, consider re-smiling just very softly to yourself. Let the smile be a, an echo of your appreciation for consciousness waking up again. As you continue to relax and rest into this experience as it is, inevitably, there will be the announcement of a dukkha ball or a dukkha dynamic. Something's not quite right. If only, why, why doesn't he talk about anchoring to the breath? I've done that before in other systems. Why can't I just anchor? If only, only if I could be here all the time. Only if I could just be in this peaceful moment forever. Whatever form your sense of incompletion takes, whatever form your discontent takes, let that dynamic be known. It's the spring from which a deeper awakening can unfold when we learn 
to let go of the grasping within the dynamic. So just as drifting off is necessary for us to know what being awake is like, a kind of awake wakefulness, the dukkha we experience, the tendency to contract around a hope, a desire, an aversion, that bundle of dukkha is necessary so that we can appreciate its release or its cessation. So as and when the Dukkha voice announces itself, again, the suggestion tonight is to try just simply asking what is here when there is no grasping? Or what remains when there is no grasping? Okay, I hope today's talk and practice are of benefit to you. I hope they help support your practice. And once again, if you were, are interested in joining our Sangha, please head over to www.joshsummers.net forward slash Sangha, S-A-N-G-H-A. And that will give you access to the yin yoga classes, the yin yoga qigong classes, and the yang yoga classes that we offer that complement the contemplative meditation themes of the Dharma Talks. Have a great week, and I really look forward to seeing you in the next episode. Stay strong and practice on.